0: You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another week of The Perth Property Show, Perth's number one property podcast. I'm your host, Trent Fleskins, as always. And this week, we are chatting our fourth topic on our apartment development series, It's been a while since uh, our third one where we focused on sales and marketing. We have Luke Parker from OP Properties in again as, as we have for the last three and as will be for the last one after this. Luke, thanks very much for coming in again, mate. No worries, Trent. Uh, Great to be here. Good morning, everyone. We're chatting construction today. We are talking about that tendering, construction, and handover. So to recap, we've gone through site due diligence. We then went into design development. We then went into sales and marketing and bank funding. So now we're at a point where we have our bank funding because we have our pre-sales, because we've sold well. Now we're at a point where we're just trying to get to site. What's the next point here? What are we doing now? Is Is it tendering or have we done that at some point? whilst we were selling? In terms of our next steps, I mean really, as you say, you're at a point
1: where you're basically ready to go. You've done the hard work, you've got your planning approvals, you've got your bank funding, you've got your pre-sales, and the bank's ready to go, you're ready to go uh, into construction. So often you're a few months ahead of forecast construction commencement, while you're working for the last year of your pre-sales, you'd go to tender and you would run your tender process to select your preferred builder. Now, you might have a builder on board earlier and we'll talk through different methods of, of engagement of builders. But in terms of running your tender, I think everyone's got their own almost horror story of, of a bad construction project where it went on forever and all these problems and, and lots of variations. And look, every, every construction project carries risk. But I think the key takeaway and key message is that there's a lot you can do to mitigate and control your construction process. It doesn't need to be a runaway train. It doesn't need to be a highly stressful and risky process during the development. And that's some of the things that we'll talk through.
0: A lot of it comes down to the relationship you have with the builder and the expectations you set on them from the first conversation you have. But it can be really hard for a punter off the street or even a first or second or third time developer to ascertain how ethical your builder is, how experienced they are, and whether you're on the same page about the level of detail and the level of expectation you have on them. There's a lot of sales still involved in the building industry of them selling their services to you. How do we get ourselves on a level playing field when it comes to what we want out of the build, what price, and having a lot of that detail up front as possible? And look, that's a really good point,
1: and and really hits at the core of being clear with the builder up front. I think it's really important that everyone sort of knows knows a few builders, and you catch up with people, and often you know, builders will, will get wind that you've got a development going because you've just finished your pre-sales so they'll approach you and having coffees and, and, and starting to to get to know people or get to know people better is really important. But when it comes to your, to your tender, we generally advocate for, for going to a competitive tender. Uh, there are types of um, early contractor involvements where you can do alternatives but really talking from a tendering point of view, it's, it's a great way to maintain competitive tension uh, and get submissions in that you can then assess um, who you want to partner with.
0: It's not just about the cheapest
1: price though, is it? no look definitely not and and often we'll get tenders in and uh, almost more often than not we won't be picking the lowest price and then when you say well why would you why is that you know that that sounds crazy the idea is i think when you run your tender it's really important that your documentation is as clear as possible you need to include in in the tender documents that what specification you're expecting what the site parameters and complexities a program what's your insurance requirements are there any liquidated damages or penalties if the builder's late and how your bank giving you special criteria that the builder needs to meet so the idea there is it's really clear so the builder and the builder subbies they know what they're pricing there's no guesswork and so when you get the tenders in you're able to compare them apples for apples if you haven't got that detailed information then you get your tenders in one's an apple one's an orange one's banana Mm. right they all cost the same or they all cost different but either way it's really difficult to compare and that, that's where um, you gotta go through it and filter out through post tender adjustments so that they're all on level playing field. So what might seem like the cheapest tender to begin with has a builder who's excluded timber floors, whereas the next tendra has included timber floors and so what looks to be cheaper actually isn't mm. it's just a different specification
0: all the external facades have a lot less sexy detail a cheaper product one thing that i get concerned about at this level because we're not just going to our mum and dad builders here you know we're going to this is, a, this is a commercial arrangement and one thing that i get worried about or i spend a lot of time focusing on is the risk side of things as you said liquidated damages and the ability for the builder to come back and say, oh, we didn't specify this, we didn't specify this, it's plus, plus, plus. I think there's a lot more opportunity in this commercial arrangement, given it's not protected by mum and dad style expectation and HIA contract for the builders to come, come at you and really take advantage of your naivety. The other thing is like, it's
1: a really competitive market out there. Builders are gonna price what you've asked them to price. If you haven't specified it properly, they're going to assume a low level of finish not not always because they're trying to get one over you they're trying to win the job yes it's and so
0: got to be clear so it's easier for them to win the job and then uh, ask for forgiveness later rather than never get the job in the first place absolutely yep but you, it's really on you if you don't understand what questions and expectations you're asking in the first place That's how do we right. how do we know what those are other than hiring a project manager like yourself who does know what those things are is there a list of broader things that we need to be protecting ourselves on against on you know when we're in this process spending a bit more on your consultants design development so a bit more
1: architectural work a bit more structural investigation building services are often one from a headworks point of view the builder will exclude from the contract because it's not it is really a client experience so investigation there on cost can make a big difference and the more detailed your documents the more accurate the build-out and the subbies are able to be, the more they've got to work off. The more and, they've got to the work off. And less guesswork. Less guesswork, but also the more that they're accountable for because it's clearly drawn what you want them to build, so they need to build it. Mm. And if it's not clear, they'll they'll make an assumption, and it, it they might not be trying to you know, do something untoward but they need to make assumption because there's just a gap of information and that may not align with what you have in your head that you want the outcome to be. But if you haven't told the builder through clear documentation then, these, then things will fall through the cracks.
0: That might include things like shared services, external landscaping, the gazebo and barbecue set that you had planned but aren't detailed properly on the site, or maybe it says an exclusion and other things that are more safety-based that they may or may not include. Changes recently and things like the sprinklers for fire ratings, those sort of things are making builds ever more complex and ever more expensive. Absolutely, and then
1: we touched on before, most developers of apartment projects will have will have some bank funder, or, or at a minimum, some third party capital coming coming in to help fund the project. You know, what are your builder's payment terms? When can they make payments, and what bank guarantees are you expecting them to put up? Because any top tier bank is gonna have a whole list of requirements that they
0: want the builder to provide. To show that they've got the cash to float this build in the first place, because they're obviously paying for things and yep. then getting uh, invoices paid back to them. That's right, so to
1: show, I mean, there's a few things, if the builder, to see the builder's financials and just get comfort they've got the cash flow, track record's always, always a big one. And then uh, retention held, um, so if there is an insolvency event, the developer has some cash withheld to move on to the next builder or, or to step in, take over the subbies and complete the job. And then at the back end, um, you're holding retention for defects liability period 12 months post-construction. There are
0: a few different ways that you can form a contract with a builder. One would be something called ECI where you have early contractual involvement. You also have things like construct only or design and construct. You said that you want people that you prefer builders to tender on that construction piece. How would they get involved earlier in the design and yep. still get paid or or not expect to get the job? We do see this a lot. I think some people
1: have really close relationships with their builder and often the builder through absolute best intentions is happy to help out with the developer and spend lots of time on design refinements and all of that. But I just think we, we do see a lot of disputes where that relationship's formed early, everyone's happy with the arrangement, and, and off we go. But now it's not until it actually comes to construction where the developer and builder sit down and say, okay, so now we need to lock the price in. And by the way, we need 5% retention. That awkward, and, awkward conversation. Yeah, and the bill's like, well, what do you mean it's going to be $6 million? Well, I told you it's going to be seven and a half. And you're like, oh, what do you mean? And that's where if the parameters and, and, and the cost and the and the contract terms aren't necess- aren't agreed early on, we do see a lot of disputes forming at that at that basic construction commencement phase because of the best of intentions of might be might be even two mates, you know, sort of thing early on. But they just haven't actually documented what the arrangement is. So you've got a situation there where the builder, you know, could put a lot of time into it on the expectation of getting the build, but for whatever reason, the developer is misaligned with their objectives, and you got this situation where the builder's like, well, hang on, you told me you're gonna give me the job, so I've spent 100 grand in staff time helping you for the last 12 months to get to this point. Hiring people. Yeah, now you're telling me I have to go a tender, or you're gonna give it to someone else, what are you talking about? And the developer's like, well, I really appreciate your help, mate, but you're a million and a half bucks over budget, I don't have a choice, sort of thing. ECIs or Early Contractor Involvement is a formalised process where there's an ECI contract where the builder might get paid a fee or may get paid no fee to help the developer step through the really early design stages. The and
0: estimation.
1: E- yeah, the estimation, design refinement, where are the services going, reducing clashes. Value engineering. Value, absolutely, all of that. And also cost planning along the way, in addition to quantity surveys, input, and the like. And ECIs can work really well. I'm not against ECIs, but it, it's important that um, it, 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 the framework's clearly documented. And also, what project outcomes does the build need to achieve? And if they don't achieve them, the developer can kind of say, look, you didn't achieve what we need you to. I have to now go tender, otherwise I won't be able to afford this project. And and it, it documents the process. So ECI is one form. Really beyond that, it's, it's really traditional tendering. The forms of of contract can be construct only. So that's where your design team fully documents everything, and you provide the plans to the builder, and they build what's on the plans. There should be no
0: guesswork. No guesswork, fully documented. You're probably and paying if, your architects a lot more and your drafters to get every piece of detail. That's right. You don't want to tender on something that you have to guess on.
1: Yep, absolutely. And so the builder is committing to build what's exactly drawn. So if there's mistakes from a, a documentation point of view, then that will be a variation that the client will have to pay because
0: they're carrying the risk of the, the documents being correct. And the design being workable. Yep, that's right. The air conduct being able to go through that space. That's it. And saying it's not
1: drawn, but it's like, well, of course we wanted that. Well, it's not in the plans. Then that, that that's an additional cost. So that's the most amount of fixed price certainty. It's very
0: clear, but the developer carries a bit more risk of design clashes or, or the like. Or designing in a cost-effective way in the first place if they don't have a builder involved, assisting them with some advice. Yeah, I mean, fully documenting, construct only. Um, You're going in blind, aren't you, if you don't have the, look, the some builder builders will,
1: helping you out? Yeah, look, look. You it, early input from the builder or tendering earlier in the process has all those advantages. That's when you get to design and construct contracts where... Mm you might document up to say 70% construction. So you've got all the big things covered and you've got your finisher schedules, you've got a lot of the documentation done, but you still got the, the the real finer cabinet work details and real fine uh, uh, documentation to go last 30%, but you tender on that basis. And there's, there's yeah you know, we find that sort of 60, 70% mark, it is, it is can be a really good time because it is enough detail there to be quite clear to the builder but it's not fully documented where value adds still can't occur. So you have enough detail for the bills to price, but then part of the deal is that they take on the documentation at that point in time. You agree the price. You agree any questions have gone around specifications. You have a design brief, which talks through all the details. Now, all some any gray areas you, you address, and then they take on the last 30%. So you're
0: and, allowing them to use their competitive advantages to make your project as efficient as possible. Correct. Correct. Now... You're also passing over the design risk to them. So if a detail doesn't work or a services clash, it's their responsibility to fix it. Now, can they make a number of changes without having to get an amendment to the development approval we already got a while ago? You really want to fix it so they don't. And so the building contract should contain your development
1: approval and clear parameters around your buyer specifications, your strata plan areas and all those things. And so they can't change big things, but there are still some things that they can change to get cost efficiency. But of course, that goes both ways because you want to make sure you've got enough controls in place that they're not changing things that you're not happy with. Mm. And so it, it, it's a double edge, but think it always is when there's pros and cons with a DNC arrangement.
0: The next one would be an open book arrangement. Do you see this a lot? Not not very often, no. I would have thought that the benefit of an open book arrangement is if you are confident you have found a builder who is aligned with your values and ethics, is experienced and has a track record, and you're happy to pay them what they, you know, they're worth, right? It would be great to be able to work together on keeping the costs as low as possible and then they get a margin to you know do their work and take on the risk. Yep. Why wouldn't so, you want to do that? So I think um, one of the big challenges is it's not a fixed price
1: contract. And so your banks have real issue with it in that it is technically uncapped. Now, Chances are it might come in cheaper, but but it, it, it's uncapped. So there's some challenges there from a funding point of view. I think um, it can work where the development is is largely cash-funded. And if we'd see it in, say, you know an industrial developer that just does multiple you know, industrial building after industrial building. They've worked at the same building for 10 years. The relationships formed. There's not a lot of variance in those not lot of variance. concrete walls. They know each other very well. There's a good amount of trust there. It's largely cash-funded. and They can just roll job-to-job. So yeah, everything's open book. Often the builder will say, right, we will fix our margin at a, at a, at a dollar amount. Yeah, we a agree percent.
0: on a, what would a margin be? 4% or 12% or 20%?
1: Oh, look, apartment building, It's market's pretty tight at the moment.
0: So anywhere from one5 to 4% margin. So that's, that needs a new episode in itself to explain how a builder runs on on margin equal to an interest rate, but yeah. So
1: that's margin, then on top of that, there'll be an, an element for for the builder's overheads, as in office overheads, and then on top of that, you have your site prelims. So your overall percent is probably close to eight to 12% prelims and margin. But in open book, they're all different models. Often you'll fix the, the margin, and then you may fix the site prelims or you may not. And thereafter, you typically you, you say like, the builder has to provide three sub quotes per package, and, and the builder and client sit down and work it all through. That certainly can work. It's more, I think, barriers around funding, but you also do have quite a close relationship with your builder. It is quite easy to, to shuffle scope and, and this and that between trade packages. As a client, it can be hard to sort of pinpoint those movements. And so there does need to be, I think, a, you know, a bit of trust and relationship.
0: All right, so we've chosen our builder based on a mix of price and their level of detail as per their quote and the risk that they take on. This, you know, everything matches, everything works. We've yep. chosen them. How long does it take normally from to get to site? And then from that point, what level of involvement would you have as a development manager whilst these guys are just getting on doing their job?
1: So really from signing the contract and, and instructing to proceed, uh, you typically would detail the period of which from instruction to a site possession takes place to be 15 or 30 days, two to four weeks. And that's basically enough time for for the builders or the sheds and and get the, you know, the civil works contractor or the demo contractor lined up and basically do what needs to do, he or she, so that when they take site possession, the site sheds go up and the site becomes their site to manage. So when the builder gets a site, the site fences go up, the, the sheds are in place, the earthworks demo contractors kick off and the project commences. So typically, often there'll be some finalisation of design development. If it's construct only, that should all be done. But if it's D&C, then you'll be working closely with the builder and the architect to complete documentation. And then really from a construction point of view, you'd expect to have one formal monthly meeting. And then, look, depending on how involved you need to be, probably two to three site visits outside of that. So it might be one a fortnight and then a formal PCG, Project Control Group, meeting on site to get a formal update from the builder on how progress uh, is is going. And as part of that, you'd, you'd want to go walk around sites and the builder can show you what's happening and, and you can just get really, really, in, in really good, close communication with the builder. This is the exciting time for a developer, isn't it? They're seeing the fruits of their labour. Oh, it's, it's great. It's great. I mean, the project is almost it's been live for as long as it takes to build. So often it's 18 months to build, but it's taking 18 months to get to the starting point. And so when it starts construction, everything's in place, the, the bank's funding, the builder's going, you got your
0: pre-sales, and yeah, you really get to, you get to enjoy the process. I guess from personally, from your side, this has to be where the fruits of your labor really start to sink in and you think, you know what, the, the money's going to be in the bank and not only that, we're building something that we're all going to be able to drive past for decades to come and be proud of.
1: Oh, it is. And it's fascinating because you you have these moments where the slab gets poured and you see where the set downs are for the bathroom and, and the penetrations for different hydraulics coming through. And you're like, oh, that's, that's the master bedroom, the ensuite in, in apartment 402. It's like, wow, I've been looking at that on the plan for the last 18 months. I changed it three times and now it's there. You kind of have these moments where it's like, oh, that thing I've been looking at on my computer screen or on paper Mm. for a year is now built and like, in concrete, like it's going to be there for a long time, and yeah. that, that's kind of cool when the building starts to take shape. And you, you sort of have these moments where you step, so sit back and look and go, Wow, this is you know, this is really cool to be a part of.
0: There's something about the fresh
1: smell of uh, recently laid concrete, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, it, it that point in the project with where, where things are happening, you've, you've passed all your big hurdles, and if you pour in concrete, it means this this project is being
0: built. I suggest we're getting to the end of this build now, we're looking at handover, where I, at a point where I guess you call it practical completion, you're doing these inspections, surely, you're paying licensed professional to be checking over this with a fine tooth comb right yeah look definitely so whether it's construct
1: only or dnc where the builder has taken over coordination of the architect and and all the other consultants each consultant should have in their agreements uh, regular inspections and each consultant the design consultant should be providing a certificate of design completion or practical completion to say that the work's been done as per their plan correct Correct. So that then gets cleared by the builder. And then you've got your um, your building surveyor, which is responsible for providing third-party certification that the building has been built in accordance with all uh, with the National Construction Code. That it's not going to fall over
0: and that it's a square building?
1: Um, Depending on the design, but the the engineer will confirm it won't fall over. Yeah, the, the building certifier is going to make sure that the, they'll have the fire engineer will we'll provide them evidence that the fire system works. They'll do a lot of checking about the consultants packages. At the end of the day, it's on the building certifier to confirm everything's built to code. It's a low responsibility there. And then that documentation gets packaged up from a PC certificate of occupancy point of view and that gets handed to the local authority. And then they've got two weeks to review that information, approve it and then your occupancy certificate gets issued.
0: By the council? Yep, by the council. So where are the banks involved then with regards to a normal triple X or a quad or something small, some townhouses? Banks really don't, aren't bothered at all. They just get the progress payments and they pay them, right? Are they more involved when it comes to big apartment buildings?
1: Uh, yeah, look, in summary, yes. They're, they're larger sums of money, um, progress claims, you know, uh, a yeah, million dollars each. They're, they're, they're large monthly payments, so they want more oversight. And look, I would as well if, if I was them. So your monthly PCGs, you'd line them up in your monthly cycle where your quantity surveyor, which, which may have been with you, but these are ultimately appointed by the bank. So they're representing the bank at that point in time. We'll do the monthly inspection with you. There'll be a QS report certifying the builder's claim which we talk through the PCG. And then as the developer, you package everything up, all the invoices and send it through the bank and you'd have a pre-agreed process in place where the bank does the drawdown and and pays the developer, which then is able to pay the builder and, and other suppliers.
0: All right, so that sounds all good. What about if things don't go as planned? For example, we have delays. Now, when it comes to, again, a small residential build, there's really no way that we can go back on our builder for delays. It is what it is. We cop it. We agree to like three-year build time, even though it normally takes less than a year. If it takes a year and a half, we still can't do anything about it, right? Can you do something about it in an apartment commercial development? Uh, yeah, look, if, if you tended
1: as you know, well, and you've got a clear program, you've got liquidated damages, then the program's the program. Now, you, you're in Clement Weather definitions and clauses can give the builders rights to extend time and and very legitimately or you may have done a deal and say right I'll give you an extra month up front but you can't claim for inclement weather in which case it's their risk but that should be all very clearly defined in the contract. I think that the the, the most important thing is keeping good communication with your builder. Um, If 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 you're feeling like you're not getting clear communication at site level like you, you don't want to go to people's head but you should elevate it the the, the the construction managers and the directors wanna know if you're not getting what you need at, at site level. So communication is really important. As the client, as the developer, it's really important you stay on top of your project admin. You don't want builders' emails saying, oh, look, we had a delay last week, I'll send you the cost of that delay in a few weeks time. And these sorts of things building up over time, if they're left to the end, it becomes a big dispute things happened six months ago, no one can remember exactly what happened and then you've got lots of loose ends. Good communication, stay on top of your admin and then, look, things are going to happen. It's construction, but it's important that if you've got good communication, you, your contract's clear on what each party's role and responsibility is. When
0: things happen, you sit down and you just work them out. So when it comes to allowing for these things, whether it's a 12-apartment development or a 50-apartment development, how long would you generally allow in your own fees, for a build? From... The builder taking possession of site, probably go 14 to
1: 16 months.
0: Would you be hoping for it to be 12 to 13 realistically and yeah. just,
1: there's a bit of fat there? Yep, yep, that's it. You go a month at the back end from PC to settlements because you get your 30-day notification period. And then you've got often about, you know, four to two to four weeks, we talked about before, from date of awarding the contract to when the builder actually takes possession and the construction program starts. And so the builder from site, possession to PC might be 13 to 14 months. If, if it's, you know, it's sort of two, three, four story building, depending on the com- complexity of coming out of the ground, which is often um, where where the challenges will be. But then you need an extra month or two from the front and the back end in, in your development program.
0: Look, it's been a fantastic episode just chatting about all those complexities with the build. It is the most exciting time. It takes so long to get there. And then you just Uh, want it to go for you know in some ways i want it to keep going but in other ways we want it to be as quick as possible so we can get our money right fantastic chat appreciate you discussing all the different types of contracts and just the little things we want to look out for next episode we'll be focusing on handover and settlement and actually finishing the project up
1: Thanks, Trent. Uh, hopefully, this has been informative to listeners.
0: Okay, suburb spotlight time. Now, we are talking about Maylands. This is a suburb that many of you have been asking for us to highlight for a while now, probably a good six months. And uh, we thought now was probably the right time to chat Maylands, given uh, you know we're seeing a bit of an inflection point in buyer-seller dynamic around Perth. And I have been looking to Maylands as one of those uh, first canaries in the coal mine to really understand... Uh, price movement and just given the qualitative side of this suburb all it has to offer i I would have thought it'd be one of the first ones to really start showing some strength not maybe not just in prices but at least in buyer seller uh, relationship to help us out with that conversation we have a mainstay in, in real estate in Maylands, steve lorimer thanks for coming in mate
2: thanks trent pleasure to be here
0: when it comes to Maylands as a suburb You've got a lot of experience in this this suburb. Could you give us a sentence or two maybe as to what Maylands means to you?
2: Look, I think uh, Maylands has a great sense of community. Uh, It's obviously a very central suburb. You're very close to the river. You're very close to the city. And you've got public transport, you know, the train line there. So it's a very central suburb with a lot of facilities and a great sense of community, I think.
0: For me, uh, one great phrase you used before you went to air is it could be a sleeping giant. I would agree with you on that. I look at Maylands as like a Balmain of Sydney where it's, you know, it's, it's Riverside, but it's not in the city, but it's pretty much the closest Riverside suburb before you would term yourself being, you know, a city slicker. It also has so much of that township lifestyle as well. It's a massive suburb.
2: Absolutely. And it's got a lot of riverside too. The entire Maylands Peninsula stretching from East Perth there up to Bayswater and a lot of uh, river recreation available there too.
0: When we think back to what Maylands was to Perth between 50 and 100 years ago at the very least, what was it? Was it huge blocks and a bit of swamp and just running down Guildford Road? Who was living there, what sort of style and quality of houses and how big the blocks were and what the lifestyle was?
2: Maylands is one of the oldest suburbs in Perth. It goes back to the original uh, Swan River colony. In the uh, late 1820s, um, the Hardys and a couple of other families came out and subdivided essentially or, or got land plots. Um, they were awarded land plots by the, the government for coming out and, uh, and helping start the colony essentially. So uh, Maylands was originally farmland. There was uh, barley, sheep, dairy, a, a lot of things on the Maylands uh, Peninsula uh, back wow. in the 1800s. And since then, it's had a, a very varied uh, life uh, in terms of uh, industrial and light industrial. It's been market gardens. Some of the, the main uh, bits of history that a lot of people would know is uh, Maylands Peninsula used to be Perth Airport. Going back into the 1930s, Charles Kingford Smith um, landed there. So the the remains of the aerodrome and the marking lights are uh, still down there on the Maylands Peninsula um, before uh, the airport was moved to Jandicott and then where Perth Airport is now out past Redcliffe.
0: What a fantastic bit of history that is. Uh, My old man's a police officer. You've also got the original police academy there as well. It's now a museum, I hear.
2: That's right. In fact, some of the um, the hangars that used to be Perth Airport are now the uh, facilities for the uh, police academy down there.
0: You also have some fantastic views on that golf course, especially since the new stadiums and and the bridge have come up. At sunset, that is one of the best places to be.
2: Do you enjoy a game of golf down there, do you, Trent? Look,
0: I enjoy the views. I, I don't enjoy the uh, quality of, of uh, <laughs> the green of skill that I have. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, but I, no, I don't mind the course itself. Actually, yep. you know, I, I think. Uh, most people who play golf, unless you're actually good at it, we just like to be a you know, little island of nature within Absolutely. your suburb, right? So,
2: And we can um, all enjoy the Nineteenth Hole for a uh, coldie
0: afterwards. Exactly right, yeah. Um, Peninsula Road, 8th Ave, uh, Whatley Crescent, these are some of the... Uh, Guildford Road, these are really the arteries of mainlands. lands. Mm, where, would, where would you like to be living off of if you... I had the choice?
2: Well, look, that's a very personal question. Uh, myself, personally, I probably like some of the uh, quieter streets in the older parts of Maylands. Obviously, uh, a lot of the younger crowd and uh, city workers probably prefer to be right near the transport nodes, uh, near 8th Ave, where all the, the bars and uh, cafes and everything are. And then there's a certain certainly a large segment who prefer to be down in the Peninsula Estate, which is uh, a new subdivision uh, created in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, it's got a very different feel to to other parts of mainland.
0: You mentioned the coffee strips and the cafes. that's really come in leaps and bounds over the last five to ten years. It was a bit slow back in the day. We've got some pretty cool places to be now.
2: I think there's been a lot of uh, redevelopment of uh, a lot of inner-city Perth suburbs, and perhaps Maylands was a little bit uh, slower off the mark than some of those um, other suburbs, but it's really coming into its own now. You go out on a Friday or Saturday night in Maylands and you go to Lyric Lane, which has got a fantastic live music venue underneath, the Seasonal Brewing Company, which is a a great little brewery there, great food as well, Henry on 8th, which is another uh, boutique little bar, uh, swallow Bar around the corner, and some fantastic cafes um, mm. up and down Watley Crescent and Eighth Avenue and Guildford Road as well.
0: You obviously have the landmark Riffos on the corner there as well. It's been around absolutely forever.
2: can't can't forget Riffos. That's a great great cafe. Um, good good you know, traditional Italian food.
0: Schooling. I haven't heard of uh, many schools in Maylands personally, to be honest. If I'm yep. bringing my young family in and they're growing up from year one to year 12, where are they typically going to be going to school? Uh, look, Maylands
2: Peninsula Primary on Kilman Street. It's probably going to be where a lot of lot of kids are going to, to primary school. High school, uh, Maylands, part of Maylands is in the uh, Mount Lawley Senior High School zone. Um, that's quite sought after and uh, look obviously you've got the various private schools available and very close by um, as well
0: yeah i mean a lot of mates of mine would you know trinity mercedes perth college yep. chisholm guilford so i guess in that price point of mainland's given it it does have quite a lot of variety but quite a lot of expensive properties as well there would be a socio-economic niche there of people who can afford those private schools
2: oh without a doubt Absolutely. good transport
0: links on guilford road to get into these areas as well
2: Exactly. Okay, let's
0: move on to uh, buyers and sellers. Who would be your your typical if you could give could provide one, typical buyer, you know, the last year or so in mainland, see if you characterize that? Who's selling with you right now?
2: Look, as, as we we're discussing, Trent, Maylands is a very diverse suburb with diverse price points, too, from your, your one bedroom units from 130000 up to your multi million dollar properties on the river for several million dollars. So it just depends on what price category they're in. I'd say there's probably a lot of younger people, first home buyers, moving into the area now. Are
0: they um, coming from the area? Are they probably coming out of home from Bayswater and Mount Lawley and Maylands themselves? They're
2: coming from all over Perth, to be fair. I think they're finding for themselves that Maylands is uh, so close to the city with very good transport links and uh, great facilities and cafes, as we were discussing before. So I think they see it's a very central place to live and somewhere so close to the city and on the river with those facilities, I think has to be a good long-term investment as much as anywhere you're going to find.
0: Yeah, look, it certainly was a suburb that I was looking at with my first purchase, 11-12 11-12 years ago uh, just out near the, the shops there on you know, Caledonian and East Road that sort of area I think is yep. quite an accessible spot for someone looking to take the bus into the city Absolutely. also some views of the city as well from there
2: yes yeah for sure
0: and Sellers do you have a lot of deceased estates and it's an old suburb as you've said or are we probably past that point where most of those original owners have moved on a couple of generations ago
2: no look uh, look, there's, there's still people who are growing up in Maylands in the 60s uh, living on several thousand square metres I just sold another property on Kirkham Hill Terrace that was uh, a deceased estate uh, race lands, about two and a half thousand square metres so they are still around you, you still got some quite large land holdings in Maylands, as well as the, the properties are, that have been subdivided and uh, developed as much as you know 50 60 years ago now
0: let's move to price points this is going to be a more of an extensive conversation. I think than most suppers because there is a product for everyone in Maylands. There is the cheapest as chips, old sixties flats, right? And absolutely. then, as you said, you have some of the most expensive properties north of the river and east of the freeway, especially in Maylands. It's it's if you are going to be east of the freeway, it can be one of the most premier places to own property.
2: I would absolutely agree with you. Yep.
0: Let's start from the bottom. So, how you mentioned it before, how cheap can the cheapest BGC flat cost me.
2: Good old Len Buckridge uh, did build quite a few blocks of units in Maylands. Those units are going on kind of 50 years old now, quite a lot of those. They've been very nicely renovated inside some of them, but the price point starting from as cheap as kind of $130,000 to 140000 which is extremely affordable, even for first home buyers on a Humble income.
0: What you think about as a first home buyer, I think I've said this for a couple of suburbs, but this is so much cheaper than the other suburbs we've spoken about with lens or flats. Mm. Hundred and thirty, hundred and forty thousand dollars. That is so much cheaper with more with the interest rates right now than any rent you'd be paying, especially in a market that is, you know, super tight with rent and rent prices have to be increasing at some point after the, the restrictions with COVID. The effective mortgage would have to be hundred bucks a week or something very close to that when you think about the interest rate that's a pretty cheap way to live.
2: It's extremely affordable, um, and and great way to get your your foothold in the uh in the property market too. I think.
0: Are these facilities, are the strata fees high? Are they you know are they ready to get knocked down or do you think they've still got a few more decades in them?
2: Look, no, I think they're very strong buildings. As long as they're well-maintained, I think they could uh, quite easily be around for another 50 or 60 years. I mean, I'm not qualified for that. I'm not a structural or civil engineer yep. and it's their job. And, and any time you do buy a apartment, you can, of course, get a building inspection on the block and they can give you a bit of an idea.
0: You're not walking up to these things as an appraisal and going, Jesus, this is... on the way out you're not thinking that as you walk up to these buildings
2: no, absolutely not. No, some of the, um, the the plumbing and electrical facilities have been upgraded over the last 10 years because they are, as I said, 40, 50 years old now. And those kinds of things will probably need to be redone periodically. They might be good now for another 40 or 50 years. But look, the bricks and the concrete, pretty healthy generally. There, okay. there, there was a couple of larger blocks around that I think uh, needed a bit of maintenance. Maintenance might have been neglected uh, for a while. So you've got to be careful what you're buying. But uh, certainly that's where, where a building inspection comes in. And-
0: okay, we move up to, I guess, the two-by-ones, the older two-by-ones and the three-by-one you know, units. Yes. Where are they at a price point in Maylands right now?
2: Two-bedroom apartments um, in the, in the, some of the larger old blocks. Uh, you're probably starting from about 170000 so it's still extremely affordable. And your three-bedroom units, there's not very many three-bedroom apartments around in the older blocks.
0: What about this, you know, the old Strider title? You know, We've got your, some land. Your villas and your townhouses? Yeah, your villas, yeah. Yeah,
2: so look, your villas, your older two-by-one villas uh, right now starting... Probably from around the two sixty, two seventy mark. You've got your own roof, you've got no one living above you, and you've got a little backyard. So mid mid twos.
0: People who are looking to buy these, are they also considering buying the new product or are they really just based on their price point stuck to this market?
2: I think there's some buyers who definitely prefer all new and shiny. Because um, you're paying just, a big
0: premium for that in Maylands, right? Yeah, you yeah, would be. You know, the older 30, 40-year-old stuff, you can get it in the 200s. It's still got three bedrooms. So that, that's where I think it's it's hard sometimes from a, on my perspective as a developer to stack the numbers up because it's, it's obviously trying to find comparables based on age as well.
2: What's selling a two-bedroom, two-by-one unit uh, built in the 1970s is probably selling for uh, less than half what a two-by-one unit um, built today would be yep. but there are some differences obviously the, the the new stock that comes to market tends to have much bigger balconies and outdoor areas and often uh, better facilities as well as you know having a new feel throughout the block not just the apartment itself
0: yeah car- parking those sort of facilities as well step it up into you know I'm, I'm guessing our next point is 10 to 15 year old three by two villas quite a few of those around in in mainland, getting into the 400s yet are we still in the 300s at that point
2: for some of your smaller three by two townhouses uh, there have been some of those sell over the last year year and a half in the mid threes probably uh, not the best quality and size to be fair so a decent size three bedroom two bathroom uh, villa with a double lock-up garage generally be starting in the in the low fours and then depending on size going up to you know even high fives
0: Okay. So then what are we paying for what are we paying to get into a family home, you know, a bit of land, it doesn't have to be 800 square meters, but 4 or 500 square meters of land good three or four by two with a couple of living areas where's our price point there and and where is that product geographically
2: that product is scattered all over uh, Maylands so even where you've got uh, large unit blocks uh, on 10th avenue for instance you've still got beautiful four bedroom two bathroom character homes family homes renovated interspersed in amongst those unit blocks for those homes uh, maybe a strata you'd be starting in the mid fives and something that's green tidal on an 800 square metre block, uh, you're probably looking more kind of mid-eighths.
0: And that would, there'd be a lot of development, intrinsic value in that property if it was a green title block, I would have thought, given most of these properties are R30, right?
2: Correct. So down on Stone Street uh, in Mainlands, you might be R30. Coming back up onto 10th Ave, you're often R40. Mm. And other parts of Mainlands, R50 up to R100. So you are right. The land value tends to be very high. Uh, and that's probably why there's not as many family homes left around now uh, is because developers tend to snap them up and then subdivide them up or build apartments on them.
0: If I'm paying seven figures in Maylands, what am I buying?
2: You're looking at the very nice um, upper end homes down in the Peninsula Estate, Hinkler Loop, uh, Dakota Avenue. Um, if if you're looking in the older part of Maylands, then Kirkham Hill Terrace, Fourth uh, Avenue East, Dilly Street, uh, Stone Street, um, yeah. probably down on the river on that side.
0: These are these are literally a stone, uh, pardon the pun, a stone throw away from mm. the river, right? Some of these Absolutely. streets. Absolutely. Yeah. That people are paying for that, and and there is actually some quite really nice walks. Along that river there,
2: oh, absolutely. You go
0: between there and that Joel Terrace area of East Perth, yeah. close to the the bridge. Uh, what a beautiful walk in between Barton Park, for example, in Maylands, all the way up through to East Perth. Or, or just
2: check out the uh, the sunset from East Street Jetty. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a beautiful spot to go and go and catch the uh, sunset, or uh, you know Sunday morning walk uh, from East Street Jetty down to East Perth and have uh, breakfast there. Uh, if you're not up on the Maylands Cafe Strip having breakfast there.
0: Yeah, very true. Uh, that's the optionality, right? You can be in city, you can be river as well. That's the cool thing about Maylands. That's why I think it is a sleeping giant mm. because geographically, if you can find the right block uh, at the right price, there's so many people you can appeal to. When we come to uh, diving a bit deeper into that development space, if you had enough money to do what you had to be done in Maylands, what would you do and where would you do it in terms of a development? If I said, Steve, you've got to do a development, it has to be a subdivision, you have to be building something, can you think about where possibly some of your clients have actually made some money in the last few years? And if uh, they haven't, let us know because that's okay.
2: Trent, I think you've probably covered some of this in, in some of your previous uh, podcasts, uh, but of course, it's always um, important to start with the end in mind. Um, and so you have to cost out your development um, and see where your price point's going to be when you finish. Mm. So I, I think there's numerous different pockets you can make money in Maylands, as long as you know what you're bringing to market and you know what price point you're going to be bringing that to market and what, what it's going to cost you to, to develop and, and build that. So I don't know if I'd be picking necessarily uh, one thing. I think that as the previous oversupply in apartments uh, comes to an end, there could well be um, some opportunities in the apartment space. Okay. I think we've got mutual uh, mutual clients who've who've developed in uh, Maylands recently who've done villas mm-hmm. uh, and found they've done quite well out of that at the price point where villas are at the moment. Three bedrooms, two bathrooms, double lock-up garage, um, mid fives. Uh, I mean, obviously, you're paying a lot more than that for uh, apartments.
0: Well, hit me with a bit more of that information. So when it comes to that sort of product, I- uh, we've got some, I guess, some some data there. But are, are you confident that there is a market for you know a good sized villa these days, or a townhouse? Uh, you know, let's start with the villas. We've got some data recently, you know, mid fives for that. There's a market there. Given that this, one of the things that concerns me a lot of the time is because we've been alluding to this, because we have so many generations, vintages of previous developments. You know, the old BGC, then the two ones, the three by ones, the old three by 2s the townhouses that came in ten years ago, and they've all depreciated quite a lot. And not much has happened the last few years relatively in terms of development, right? So there's so much data of quite depreciated values in those densest products. Yep. Do you still think there's a market at that more premium price of mid fives, sixes, townhouses in the sevens or eights in Maylands, well, we know they could just is, go and buy a cheaper product yeah. that's 15 years old?
2: Uh, look, we know there is definitely a market in the villa and townhouse space at much higher prices. This, I, I guess, feeds back to what you were saying bef- before about Maylands being a very diverse area, but you've got buyers in a suburb who might have a maximum budget of 150000 160000 Now, they're not going to be buying a villa or a townhouse, but they're still keen to buy in Maylands, and they can.
0: Yeah, there's a product, yep.
2: But you've got young professional couples who've got a budget of 800000 and we might be selling them a brand new four-bedroom, two-bathroom townhouse on 300 square metres. Um, and we've just sold two sets of three townhouse developments on Hillside Crescent in Maylands and they sold very quickly.
0: Let's think about the psychology of this for a second because I, I love just battling this out. Why would they go for our brand new 800 Look, they have. The, the facts are they have. Yep. What's led them to that compared to the 10 or 15-year-old, same size, couple of streets back or even a couple of houses down the road that's just been dumped the last couple of years and is in the 600s? Why are they wanting to go for that brand new product at the premium price? What's leading them to that? Because they have the choice, right? That's right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, look, I I think um, building is uh, pretty expensive these days and it carries its own uh, risks as well. So if, if you can afford to add value and do a big renovation yourself, that's fantastic. But a lot of young professional capitals and families, they just don't have the time uh, to be gutting kitchens and bathrooms and knocking out walls, and uh, they just don't want to live in that mess either.
0: Because that's what they'd have to do if they're buying the older stock. Correct. Okay. They're buying
2: something from the 60s or 70s or 80s or even 90s. They're going to probably be doing major renovations unless they're happy to live in it
0: as is. And then they're not that they're not in that market, obviously, yeah. Correct, yeah. Yeah, okay. And that's a really good piece of logic there, I guess, that is sometimes hard when you're just looking at the RP data reports and you see a lot of dumped values on the older stuff and you go, why would someone pay an extra 200 grants? Because, well... It's a different product altogether as much as it's still a three by two on 300 square meters and it's a townhouse you've got one that's really depreciated and it's got the old uh, wood look melamine you know cupboards and maybe it's got stone maybe it doesn't and maybe the the kitchen maybe the bathrooms have uh, the upgraded taps and that or you've got the brand new which does have all those new sexy things and it's probably competing with stuff in Inglewood and Mount Lawley
2: at a slightly lower price point than you're going to find in Inglewood and Mount Lawley yeah so that's guess where the competition comes in.
0: All right, last question, Steve Lorimer. What's the median house price in Maylands? Six hundred and thirty five thousand Trent. That's an interesting price point and, and I, I guess that reflects, you know, a lot of the variety there. So you don't have this probably kicks you in the nuts today, but what are you doing with six hundred and thirty five grand? If it's Steve Lorimer and I've given that to you today in Maylands, what would you do?
2: I love to add value if I can, Trent. So um, I'm a a fan of uh, buying an older property and either renovating it up or subdividing it. And I love to see a lot of the um, older Maylands homes that are still left, um, especially from the 1900s, 1920s period, get renovated and add character back to the suburb again. So I'd probably be heading something like that myself.
0: So it's an older, maybe three by one on an old Strata title lot that is going to get a Steve Lorimer renovation?
2: Something very much like that, yep.
0: Fantastic. Steve, thank you very much for coming in, man. I appreciate you shining a light on one of my favourite suburbs, Maylands. And uh, I really do hope and believe that it should be one of the front runners. In our next swing up at different price points for value strength, just given what it has to offer as a suburb. It just, it has to be one of those gentrifying suburbs. Absolutely, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au,
1: subscribing
0: to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!